Good morning, everybody. How are we today? Okay, good. Come on, Green. My name's Eric. I am pastor here at Trinity, and we are in the middle of a series that we're calling Throwback. It's the second part of the book of Acts. So in the second half of this book, the book of Acts, what we've been seeing are these pictures. Pictures of the early church. So these first churches that were ever started in the Mediterranean world. And we're seeing how they started. What it looked like for people to embrace the Christian faith for the first time. And what it looked like for these churches to live out their newfound faith. So as Luke has given us these pictures of these early churches. He's given us these pictures so that churches of all ages and across time would be able to look back. So look at these pictures in order for us to remember what's important. What does it mean for us to be the church? And so far we've looked at four of these pictures. We've looked at Antioch, Philippi, Thessalonica, one more that I just forgot. But today we're looking at Athens. So here in this picture we see in Acts 17 what it looks like for the message of Christianity to come to the intellectual and philosophical center of the Greco-Roman world. That's in Athens. And what we see here is a picture of Paul who's engaging the culture. He's engaging the city. And in fact, if you've seen the picture that we've had that goes along with the sermon series, and there it is right there, you can kind of see it. That picture is of Paul in this passage in Athens, at a place called the Areopagus, where he's addressing the leading thinkers and the civic leaders of the city. So this idea of being an engaging church, a church that engages its culture, a church that engages its city, is something that's very important to me as a pastor, and I know it's very important to this church, to Trinity as well. And I'm, I'm new here, I've been the pastor of Trinity for about two months, but this very thing, this very topic, is one of the things that drew me to come here. To be a part of this church. Because as I was getting to know the church family here, getting to know the community and what was important here, this actually was one of the things that came up repeatedly, that Trinity wanted to be an engaging church. A church where people who are exploring the Christian faith would find a safe place to explore, to ask questions, and they'd find people who are helpful guides in trying to figure out the relevance of the Christian faith, and the relevance of Jesus to their lives. So, this is a really important passage to me, and I know it's a passage that I think will be very helpful for us as a church. And in looking at how Paul engages the culture at Athens, and how he engages the city, I hope to do at least two things. To those who are here with us this morning, who are still exploring, who are still unsure about where they stand in their faith and with Jesus, I hope you see more of how the Christian faith is a compelling and reasonable faith. For my Christian friends, I hope we see here what it means for us, what does it look like for us to be an engaging church? What it might look like for you to engage the people in your lives who have different beliefs than you. People who have deeply held and strong beliefs and what it looks like to have a meaningful and helpful conversation with those types of people that are in our lives. So we're going to look at three points this morning as we walk through this passage. 
They're in your bulletin. If you want to follow along with the outline, it's on page 5. We're going to look at where to bring our faith. We're going to look at how to engage in conversations about faith. And thirdly, we're going to look at why. Why should we do this? Why to engage in conversations about faith? So first, where to bring our faith. In this passage, Luke is showing us where. Where we ought to bring our faith. And he's telling us we should bring our faith everywhere we go. He's showing us that the Christian faith, our faith, is not a private faith, that it's actually a public faith. Not to be confined to a religious or spiritual part of our lives, or just on Sundays. It's meant to pervade the whole of our lives. Meant to be a Monday through Saturday and Sunday faith. So throughout the book of Acts, we see two things that Luke shows us. We see stories and we see speeches. So in the stories, we already talked about that. There's pictures there of what happened when the message of Christianity came to a new place and a new church was started. So Luke gives us those stories. But he also gives us speeches throughout the book of Acts. And what's fascinating about these speeches is that the audience is always different when Luke records the speeches to these different people. And it was com- the, the message of the gospel was communicated differently in these different contexts. So here, for the first time in Acts, what we see is Paul is not just speaking to the synagogues, to people who had a prior understanding and experience of the Jewish, Jewish faith and of the Jewish scriptures. He's taking the Christian message into the very heart of public life. So in Athens, some of you may know that Athens had this historic reputation for being the intellectual center of the world at the time. You had all the philosophical all-stars that came from Athens. You had Socrates and Plato and Aristotle all came from Athens. And it was a small city at the time, but it still retained its reputation for being this intellectual and thought capital of the world. Maybe similar to a Harvard or a Berkeley. I know some of you Berkeley people are like, yeah, Berkeley. And maybe an Oxford or a Cambridge, something like that. So in verse 17, we see in Athens, Paul spoke the Christian message to the marketplace. And the Greek word for that is agora. It's the public square. The marketplace was more than just a place where you were trading goods and buying things. It was the center of public life. It was the center of communication and even of entertainment. So he was there in the Agora, and he was also brought to a place called the Areopagus. And this was basically like a town council, where all the thought leaders and civic leaders gathered, and they invited him here because they wanted to know more about what he had to say. And what's fascinating, as Luke tells the story of how Paul did this, is he actually intentionally compares Paul to Socrates the old school philosopher of Athens. It says there in verse 17 that he reasoned with them in the marketplace. That word is the word dialogema, to dialogue, to ask questions. And and Luke wants us to see that Paul was actually using somewhat of the Socratic method, a method that everyone would have understood in the city. And the charge that they level against Paul is they're saying he's bringing these strange deities that we've never heard of. That charge was actually what got Socrates killed in Athens long ago. So Paul's making this interesting parallel. What we're meant to see here is that we're to bring our faith into the agoras of our day, the marketplace, into the Areopagus, into the place where conversations are happening, 
into public life where people are. And we're to engage in a way that is gracious, that is understandable, and that meets people where they are. That Christianity is meant to be an engaging faith. And that the church, and that Christians should be engaging the ideas and the beliefs and the people of our culture and of our city in conversation and in dialogue about what we believe. So what about our current day agoras, our current day marketplace and public life? Well, one feature that affects Christians, but also equally affects non-Christians, is that in our public places, where you work, in our public places, in entertainment, almost entirely, one factor here, is that God is not mentioned at all. God, for the most part, is seen as unimportant and irrelevant to public life. And so for non-Christians, they wonder, is God relevant to modern life? We don't really talk about Him. We don't really reference Him in my normal everyday life in the marketplace. And for Christians, we wonder, what does it mean to have an engaging 24-7, seven-day-a-week faith? How is God relevant to my modern life and to my marketplace? In the hospitals where you work, or in your medical offices, in the courtrooms, in the schools, in your place of business, every day... We kind of operate without mention of God in what we do. The reference to God, and in fact the idea of anything spiritual and religious, is kind of sequestered off from our public lives. Let's keep that private. We'll do our thing here in the marketplace. And so to my Christian friends here, this kind of all adds up to a sense and a feeling like we feel like God is being pushed out. Faith is not welcome. And the Christian faith kind of being set on the sidelines and marginalized. And we kind of all have this sense or this memory, that wasn't the way it used to be. And sometimes we have a reaction to that. This idea that public life, the marketplace now, is not welcome to our faith. People and scholars would call this the fact that we live in a post-Christian world. Prior people had an understanding of the Bible. Prior people in, in the marketplace maybe saw, thought, hey, God is, is an interesting topic that we sh- should be relevant here. The idea of higher things and moral values, finding their meaning in God, that's important. All those things are different now. And we live in a post-Christian culture. And Christians, we've tended to react in three ways to this that are not helpful. First way, sometimes this, all, this leads us to avoid public life, to avoid culture, because it will corrupt us, it will weaken our faith. And so we avoid, we create a subculture and a privatized faith. Second way that we react to this is we often attack. We criticize. We condemn what's happening in a godless public culture. We condemn the evils and the ills of society, and we tend to fight for our place, and we make it an us-versus-them approach. Sometimes we avoid, sometimes we attack, and there's a third response. Sometimes we just say, you know what, I'm going to assimilate. Just stay quiet, I'll just fit in, I'll just enjoy the features of public life and culture without ever thinking or engaging with my faith. What Paul does here, he models for us a very different approach. He didn't avoid. He was there in the center of public life. He was engaging. 
He was also very careful not to attack. He presented his faith with sensitivity and respect. And he didn't assimilate. He was on a break, actually. He was being moved out of Thessalonica and Berea. People had kicked him out. He was there in Athens. He didn't just say, I'm just going to enjoy my time here in the great Athens and be a tourist and do sightseeing. He engaged. And he made a case that God is not only, only relevant to the public life of Athens, that he was the missing piece that they were all searching for. So that's the first thing. We see where we are to bring our faith. We're to bring our faith into the public sphere, into our lives, into the marketplace. Secondly, Paul models not only what we are to do, he also helps us see how we are to do this. And I think we have here three steps toward an effective conversation in a public setting, in a pluralistic setting where people believe differently than we do. And I think this is significant, the order that I'm I'm going to share here with you all this morning, especially in our environment where people do have deeply held convictions and beliefs that differ from us. Sometimes the steps are very significant. On Friday, I took one of my sons camping, and this was the first time that I was in charge of a camping trip. I've gone with other people, but I've let them lead the way. It was just me and my son, and I thought we could handle it. One of the things that we were going to do is put up our tent, the 10-person tent, for the first time. So we pull it all out, and we're like, we got this. And I look at the steps there, the directions. It says, step one, anchor the bottom of the tent to the ground with your tent pegs. And I thought, I don't think we need to do that. Let's just do the top, and let's get the legs, and we'll put it in place. I've seen tents without anchors. Let's so we're trying to put it all up, and I'm like, oh man, I don't know if it's going to work. And it's like falling to one side and swaying to the other side. And then I was getting frustrated. I tried to pull one of the tent poles out that was stuck, and it just slammed me right in the face, like right in the eye, knocked my glasses off. I said, okay, let's follow the steps. And it was a good thing that I did. Here, Paul shows us three steps. We need to follow these steps to have an engaging conversation, a respectful and gracious conversation with people whose beliefs differ than us. First, first step, he understood other people's points of view. He understood other people's points of view. The first rule in preaching 101, the first rule in communication 101 is know your audience. Know your audience. This applies to any time we talk about our faith, especially in the public square. I was talking to another pastor, and he said a part of his internship, before he could take the next step towards ordination and becoming a pastor, is he had to teach at every single level in this church's teaching ministry. From the preschoolers, to the grade schoolers, to the middle schoolers, on up. And I thought, that's brilliant. Because the test of a real teacher is, can you adapt your message to a different audience? Paul went out of his way first to understand who he was talking to and what they believed, and why they believed it before he spoke. In verses 22 and 23, we see Paul, what was he doing? He was observing the spiritual makeup of the city. He said, I passed along, and I saw saw the idols of the city. I saw an altar to an unknown God. He begins with observation, and he says in verse 22, when he's addressing this Oropagus, he says to them, I perceive that you are all very religious. 
Back in verse 18, we learn a part of the people that Paul was engaging with were these philosophers, the Stoics and the Epicureans. They were very popular philosophies back in that day. And though we can't go into the finer details, scholars note how Paul specifically tailored his message to connect to their ideas, points of agreement and points of disagreement. And then we see that he quotes two well-known Greek poets and philosophers in verse 28. So Paul was reading, and he was doing his homework. The first step, then, to be an engaging church, the first step, then, to be an engaging Christian, is to be a good listener, a good observer, to seek to understand other people's point of view. Theologian and author Francis Schaeffer was once asked what he would do if he had an hour to talk with a non-Christian about Jesus. He said he would listen for 55 minutes. And in the last five minutes, he would have something to say. I thought that was very profound. First step is understanding other people's points of view. Second, he looked for points of contact. Second thing Paul did is he looked for points of contact. He wasn't only observing and seeking to understand, he was also looking for points of contact between the Christian faith and the beliefs of those to whom he was speaking. The meaning, he didn't only look for places of disagreement, but where do we differ? He also was focused on looking for these points of contact. And where did he look for these? He looked for these all over Greek culture, in their religion, in their philosophy, and in their arts. And the Bible teaches us that in every culture there is evidence of a search for God. And there's also an emptiness of having yet found Him. There's an evidence of the search for God, of a hunger and a yearning for God, but there's also evidence of an emptiness of Him not being found. He saw all these idols. He saw the altar to the unknown God. He didn't say, guys, this is ridiculous. What are you doing? What are you thinking? Unknown God? What's that all about? Instead, he looked at that. He saw a hunger. A hunger to worship, a hunger for transcendence. And then he quoted the Greek poets of their day and of their culture to make connections to gospel truths. Notice that Paul doesn't ever quote the Bible here. But he's talking about biblical truth and the gospel all over the place. Important theological point here is that God has woven into every culture, into every place, these signals of transcendence, of his presence. There's a search. There's a yearning for God everywhere, in every culture, in every place. And when we look for these, and we're on the lookout for these, we'll find them everywhere. In the books, in the movies, in the music, in the art, in the ideas of our culture. So if we're listening, we'll hear the echoes of the gospel. And sometimes we're too caught up in what we need to avoid. We're too caught up in attacking. We're just assimilating and enjoying it. We don't have our ears tuned to listen for those echoes. Let me share an example of this. It's a little bit dated, but it's the story in the books of Harry Potter. And we're late, we're very late to this party, me and my family. We're reading the Harry Potter story. We're in uh, book five right now, but I can't think of a more influential story the past 25 years in the Harry Potter books. There's a theme park, there's multiple theme parks just based on this story. It deeply resonated, not only with kids, but with adults. And I know a lot of you have read these books. Why? Why did it resonate? What was the power in these stories? Now we know that there was, especially when it first came out, a lot of Christian suspicion and reaction 
to these stories. There's witches and witchcraft and all that. And they said, whoa, I don't know about this. But what was going on in these stories? Now, I'm in book five. There's more to come. No spoilers out there. Don't talk to my kids about what happens. But the overarching question I already see is this. Can the power of substitutionary sacrifice defeat the power of evil and darkness? Isn't that what the books are all about? Isn't that an echo of the gospel? Isn't that why they resonated so powerfully with so many people? C.S. Lewis said this, and I have this quote for us to see. There it is. He said, The books or the music in which we thought the beauty was located will betray us if we trust in them. It was not in them. It only came through them. And what came through them was longing. These things, the beauty, the memory of our own past, are good images of what we really desire. But if they are mistaken for the thing itself, they turn into dumb idols breaking the hearts of their worshippers. So profound. If we are listening for points of contact, we'll hear that search and that yearning for beauty and for meaning. We'll also hear the brokenness. The brokenness that is evidence of people not having found yet what that beauty and what that meaning is meant to lead to. So that's the second step. Look for points of contact. Thirdly, Paul also challenged the pressure points. According to Christian theology, in every culture there are points of contact with truth. But there are also pressure points where the gospel challenges the ideas and the beliefs of any culture. In verse 27, Paul says, as he's describing the Athenians, always searching for truth. He says, perhaps they might feel their way towards God. Now the word there in the original language means to look for something in an uncertain fashion, to grope about for something in the darkness. And in Athens there were so many options and so little agreement about which was right. There were unknown gods, there were new ideas all over the place. And underneath all of this, Paul says there's a groping, there's a doubting, there's a searching in the dark. He wanted to push on that pressure point. And Paul says, we can't spend our lives in skepticism forever. We can't spend our lives just doubting or in intellectual talk. Because he says, God can be known not by our imagination or by our ideas, but how he has revealed himself to us. In that he is known. He is a personal God. And he is also a transcendent God. And then he says, there is coming a day of judgment and of resurrection. Both the Epicureans and the Stoics were materialists. They believed that this world was all there is, and then you die. And he was saying, how can life, with all its suffering, have meaning if this is it? These were the pressure points where Paul was focusing his challenge. How about in our day, in our marketplace today, in our public world? What is an example of a pressure point? There are many but one that I've been thinking about a lot that I think is relevant here is the impact of technology. What is the impact of technology in our lives and our relationships? There's so much we could say about this, but it's just so striking that I think I've only had a smartphone for six years. Maybe we've had them for six, seven, eight years, but there 
now just a part of our life. We can't ever leave home without our smartphones. They sleep next to us. They're always there wherever we go. There's a comedian. His name's Louis C.K. I don't know if you've heard of him. He was a writer for Letterman, Chris Rock, and Conan O'Brien. And he was on the Conan O'Brien show, and he was talking about why he is withholding smartphones from his children. And he said this. He said, you need to build an ability to just be yourself and not be doing anything. That's what the phones are taking away. He said, Under, underneath in your life, there's that thing, that forever empty, that knowledge that it's all for nothing, and you're alone. That's why we text and drive, because we don't want to be alone for a second. So this comedian, kind of pointing out this pressure point in our modern world, what technology might expose and show us about ourselves. There's another article that I was just reading on this in New York Magazine by a guy named Andrew Sullivan. And the title of the article is, I Used to Be a Human Being. And it's all about his relationship with technology. He was all in. His whole business, his whole life was wrapped up in the world of social media. Every 20 minutes, every 20 minutes he was posting something new. And he was a part of a company that was doing this. But he tells his story about how he became addicted to being connected to constant blogging, to constantly checking his phone. And he had to go to this place called the Insight Meditation Society to get out of this and to break free. Here's what he says about churches. He had a message for churches. He said, if the churches came to understand that the greatest threat to faith today is not hedonism, but distraction, perhaps they might begin to appeal anew to a frazzled digital generation. Christian leaders seem to think they need more distraction to counter the distraction. So this pressure point, living in a distracted world, our relationship with technology, what does the Christian faith have to offer and to say? We have a faith that says the God of the universe came to us embodying our humanity fully in order to Restore friendship with us. He didn't just only send his word. He came to us. That he might befriend us. How much more should churches be places of embodied relationship and friendship? We could say so much more about that. Just an example of a pressure point. Paul says we do have to do that. That third point is we have to look for pressure points and ask ourselves, in these pressure points in our culture, what does the gospel have to say? Third thing we see here in this passage is why. Why we should engage in conversations about faith. We might agree that we are to engage in the public square and also see wisdom in Paul's model here about how we are to do that in the steps there. But we might still be uncomfortable. We might still be unwilling to have these conversations in our marketplace, in the public square, in our neighborhoods, and in our business places. Why? But we can't just know what we're to do. We can't just know how we are to do it. We do have to be convinced of why am I supposed to do this. And maybe we're scared of the mixed reactions that might come if we just identify ourselves as a Christian. And simply that. This passage is very honest about this. Some people heard what Paul had to say and said, you are a babbler. People mocked him. People rejected him. 
And to engage is to open yourself to criticism and misunderstanding and rejection, but many others were actually very intrigued by this and said, I want to hear more. And some actually became convinced and believed. But in the very first verse of this passage, look at verse 16. There it tells us why Paul engaged. It says in verse 16, Paul's spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. This is the same language that's used of God throughout the Bible to describe God's response to idolatry. It's a word that's connected to his jealousy. In Deuteronomy 32, 21, it says, They have made me jealous with what is no God. They have provoked me to anger with their idols. This is the word and the idea of a jealous lover who is provoked to action. Think about it like this. If the person in your life that you love, you don't have that person, just try to imagine that with me. If that person you love is giving affection and attention to another person, and you see that, you will be provoked. You will be provoked to jealousy. Rightly so. Another person is getting what is rightly yours. The affection of your spouse. God is jealous for our love like this. Our affection, our loyalty and love is meant to be ultimately for Him alone. And when we give that affection, when we give that worship to other things, that provokes His jealous love. He is provoked to act. And this morning, this meal, communion, the Lord's Supper, shows us what God did. What did He do when He was provoked to act out of jealous love? What happens when he was provoked? He came to win us back. He came to get us back. What happens when a jealous lover confronts his or her unfaithful love? Isn't there an outpouring of wrath? Isn't there an outpouring of anger? How could you do this? The Gospel tells us that that outpouring God took in our place so that we wouldn't have to take that, but that so He could win us back and take us back. He took what we deserved in order to show us the measure of His unbreakable love, His jealous love for us. The whole story of the Bible is about the jealous love of God who must have His bride. Revelation 19.9 says, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. The very end, one of the last pictures we're left with. How does the story end? It ends with His bride finally being His. And this meal is a foretaste. This meal is a preview. This meal is an appetizer of that great meal, which is to come. But back to us for a moment. Well, how does that motivate me? How does that motivate us to engage? Imagine this, if you see your best friend's spouse giving affection to someone else. What does it mean to be a good friend? Does it not mean confronting? Does it not mean engaging and saying, what are you doing? This is not where your love is meant to be. Your love is meant to be here and here alone.
That's the motivation for us to engage. We have a jealousy for God and His worship, but we want to be good friends to the people God has put into our lives. Not wanting to see their love directed anywhere else, but to the only one who can satisfy. The only one to whom their worship and love is meant to be given. That's the why of the church that is the engaging church. That's the why for us. Why we should engage the people that God has put to our lives. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you that you are an engaging God. Your love for us broke through all barriers, through the ways that we misdirect our love, through the ways that we place our love and our worship on other things. Thank you that you engaged with us, that you came to us. And as we see here pictured before us on this table, that you were willing to go to the uttermost so that you might convince us, win us back, turn us back to your love. I pray now in this area of our lives and of our faith that requires so much wisdom, so much discernment, that you would indeed empower us by your grace to be able to engage, to be a church that engages those who do not yet know you with the gospel. Send us out out of love. Send us out because you came to us. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now before we come to the table together, we're going to